And then something else happened, but, you know, God is good. Thank you. <clears throat> well, Jody and Emily, did I get that right? Sometimes my memory just cuts off what it is. You made me cry, so thank you. <laughs> so good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you this morning. I'm going to share a story with you today. And it's the story of something that happened to me on the morning of June 26, 2020. This story, however, falls within the context of another story surrounding the events of January 1st, 1999. Unfortunately, there are some things that may be hard to hear. But I prayed over every word that I will share with you this morning. And I am going to be as discreet as possible with any of the specifics that I share with you. My intent is not to shock anyone, but hopefully to encourage you and perhaps even challenge you a little bit. This is a very personal story, not just personal to me, but to many of you sitting in this congregation today. So many of you walked with me through those long hours of January 1st, 1999, and well beyond with your prayers and your acts your kind acts. Thank you so much. Without a doubt, I am here today, partly due to the grace extended to me through your prayers and petitions to God on my behalf. From my heart, thank you. Well, to begin, I need to introduce a couple of people some of you have never met. <clears throat> I've asked the AV ministry to help me here. If you'd bring up the first picture, please. Well, not very clear, but I think you can get the idea. So this is um, Mary Ruth Williams Clark. She was the mother of four children, my two brothers, my younger sister Kathy and me. She was a grandmother affectionately known as Grambo. She was a retired school teacher, and she eventually came to work here at the church and was a part-time secretary. My mother was beautiful, intelligent, and witty. And you might get a hint of her spunk in this. All 94 pounds of her. Shortly after I invited Christ into my life in 1978, my mother visited me in San Francisco, and there she rededicated, rededicated her life to the Lord. And although our relationship had been good, it grew into something much greater, very rich and deep. She became my very best friend. So my parents separated in the late 1970s after almost 30 years of marriage. And this was a very painful time for her. But she found a way to allow her pain to push her closer to God. They eventually became good friends by the grace of God. And we were able to enjoy many family gatherings with one another. Picture two, please. All right. <clears throat> so here we are. This is a, a picture taken with an extended family reunion uh, in late summer 1996. I want to point out a gentleman who is to the top on your left. That is Daniel. Daniel was my parents' first grandson. He was very adored by my parents. <clears throat> I didn't know at the time that Daniel was, would be coming to live with us shortly after this picture was taken. So this third picture is a picture of Mom and I in the home that I purchased in 1994. She loved this home. In particular, she loved having space to host family gatherings with her children and her grandchildren. 
I don't remember a time when I ever saw her any happier. She was at peace. She was carving out a new life for herself. And she seemed to love every minute of it. She especially loved her job here at the church. Sometime in late 1996, my mother received a call from my sister asking if we would be willing to help with Daniel. His behavior had become unmanageable. The two years that he had spent in a detention center had apparently had little impact on deterring his very bad behavior. She didn't want him around the younger siblings, and so she reached out to my mom and I for help. She asked if we would be willing to allow Daniel to come and live with us. We prayed about it, and I can't explain this in any other way, but we felt a calling, a calling from God. And we rejoiced because we thought this was a wonderful opportunity to intervene in the life of a young, troubled man. And so it was that Daniel came to live with my mom and I. As you can imagine, there were quite a few challenges. But after two years, Daniel seemed to be settling down. We were so hopeful that God would draw Dan by his spirit and that this young man would eventually know Christ as his Savior. To our dismay, he announced to us in late 1997 that he wanted to move to Los Angeles, California, to try to get to know his dad better. So against our most sincere objections, he packed his bags and left. I don't remember much correspondence between us during that year, but I do remember the call that came in in late November 1998 asking for a bus ticket back to Richmond. Things weren't going well, and he wanted to come home. He returned, and it became very quickly apparent that he had a very serious drug problem. We sought out counsel, and we did the recommended intervention, sat down with him, told him we loved him, we supported him, but he absolutely must agree to residential treatment for drug addiction, or else he would have to leave the house. He refused. A few days later, he packed his things and left, and as far as we knew, he was on the streets. This was extremely heart-wrenching for my mom, and she prayed for him every day. I remember a particular prayer that went something like this, Please, God, whatever it takes, Protect this child and save his soul. I would remember that prayer for many days to come. Well, some months prior, my mom and I had planned, my mom, excuse me, had planned to spend Christmas in D.C. with my sister and her family. So I was alone in the house on the morning of December 26th when the phone rang around 5.30 a.m. It was Daniel. And he said just the words we'd been praying to hear. I've hit rock bottom. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm willing to go into treatment. Just please let me come home. I called my mother. We prayed. We rejoiced. Hope revived. My sister asked me to put him on a bus to D.C., and the plan was that he would return to the house with my mother in late December. I contacted the facility that had been willing to offer him treatment in early December, and they did have a place for him, but unfortunately it was not until January 4th. Daniel and my mom returned to the house around December 28th. The last few days of December were fairly uneventful. New Year's Day started with the promise of new beginnings. I had a date that evening with a man named Jerry Haynes. About the 4th, before he arrived at 6.30 p.m., my mom, Daniel, and I had enjoyed a sweet dinner. With lots of chatter and playful banter between my mom and Dan, they shared this very special sense of humor that I apparently didn't understand. (laughs) 
And I remember looking across the table and thinking, my gosh, how these two love each other. At around 6.45 p.m., I stood on the porch and waved to my mom. I see you later. I returned from the movies with Jerry around 10.20, 10.30 p.m. The police took me to their car and told me that they thought there had been a break-in. There had been an altercation, and my mother was deceased, apparently from a head injury. Within 24 hours, I learned a completely different story. For reasons which have never been explained to us, approximately 45 minutes after I left the house, Daniel attacked and took my mother's life. Now, I want to share a scripture right here. Romans 8, 28. Many of you know it by heart, but if you would, just take your Bible. If you've got it, <clears throat> or a pew Bible, turn to Romans 8, 28. Or if you know it, just think about it. I want to just read it. <clears throat> and we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. As you can imagine, there were lots of scriptures that were shared with me in the days following my mother's death, but Romans 8.28 wasn't one of them. So how does a verse like this even fit into a sad story like this? Can we really believe that God could work in such a sad family tragedy in any way that could be considered good for a follower of Christ. Well, stay with me, please, as I share with you what happened on June 26, 2020, and how it changed the way in which I would look at the ultimate outcome of January 1, 1999. I was not allowed to reenter the home until the police had concluded their investigation of the crime scene. As it was, I did not return for four months a wonderful couple who formerly attended this church, Roxanne and Steve Parks, allowed me to live in their home as long as I needed. At the end of four months, I decided that I had to confront the fears that had been chasing me every night. I wanted to take back that house, that home, which my mother and I had once shared. As you might imagine, there were a lot of long, dark nights that followed. But days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months, and months turned into years. I married Jerry Haynes in late 2000. I was busy working. I finally finished my um, degree, my master's degree in social work, went on to get another master's degree as I was working full-time, one of the benefits of working at VCU. And I adopted a son, a wonderful son, in 2005. I was a survivor. (laughs) I knew Jesus. I was fine. Only I wasn't, and God knew otherwise. And he allowed circumstances to bring me to a screeching halt in the summer of 2018. Unfortunately, my mother's death, although the most traumatic event I've ever experienced, was not the only traumatic event I'd experienced. And I'd never dealt with any of it. And it was all beginning to take a toll. I found myself consumed with fears and anxiety that were starting to impair my daily function. And on one afternoon... In August 2018, I was having lunch with a friend who was a former psychiatric nurse, and I shared with her my struggles. After patiently listening to me, she replied, Susan, you are a classic case of PTSD. You need to get some help. I couldn't deny it. 
It took almost a year to find a counselor that I could trust and feel comfortable with. But I eventually found a wonderful pastor who was a licensed counselor. And I spent the last half of 2019 in counseling. During the last session, I told the counselor that there was just one more thing I needed to do to feel completely healed. I needed to confront that report. That horrible multi-page report that had come from the medical examiner's office. I had briefly scanned it many years before, but it had not been able to take it in, nor did I understand it. I needed to understand what happened to my mother, my best friend that night. Confront the truth, because what was in my imagination had tormented me for years. So beyond all coincidence, I had resources at my disposal. I had, after all, been working with surgeons for over 20 years, and now, and in all places, worked in surgical education and training. Where, of all things, I coordinated a case, excuse me, a course, which our surgeons discussed and assessed traumatic injury. I reached out to a friend of mine who had connections, and he asked a co-worker who happened to be the chief medical examiner at the Virginia Department of Health to call me. And so it was on the morning of June 26, 2020, that I was busy running an event with surgical interns when I noticed I'd missed a call. I looked down. I recognized the prefix. I had 30 minutes before the next session was to begin, so I went to my office to return the call. I grabbed the report, my questions, dialed the number, and waited for him to answer. My heart was pounding. The gentleman was very kind and compassionate. I asked my questions. He answered them one by one. And so I finally knew the terrible truth of what happened to my mother that night. What I didn't know was God was about to transform that into a knowledge of his greater purpose. I sat at my desk quietly weeping. I trusted God. He knew that. I just struggled with what to do with this knowledge, how to move on. I tried to recall a verse, a a story of similar circumstance that would bring me some comfort and solace. I cried out to God, please, show me one person in the Bible who lost someone they loved in such a cruel and violent way at the hands of someone they loved so dearly. And as clear as you can hear my voice right now, I heard God say, My son. (laughs) Although I had certainly considered the great sacrifice of cross many times before, it was this picture of this relationship between a loving father and a faithful son that suddenly unfolded before my eyes. A picture of a loving father who watched as his son was beaten, spat upon, ridiculed, and ultimately crucified. I saw the father looking at the hands of his son, strong, beautiful hands that had touched and healed, had many times been folded in prayer for others. What had he felt as he watched them being nailed to a cross? I have a son, a one and only son, and he has strong, beautiful hands. And I cannot imagine that I would stand and watch anyone nail them to a cross. Yet, that is what God the Father did, and in every way he understood all the pain and suffering his son endured that day. He was, after all, God. He made the body, and he, and he was intimately acquainted with the extent of every injury, every pain and affliction to which his son was subjected. 
knowledge which evaded me. He did not need a ex- medical examiner to explain to him what his son had experienced. He knew, and yet he watched with unimaginable restraint. And he chose not to intervene. How had he done this? The only answer could only lie in his omniscient and omnipotent abilities to look beyond the cross cross, and utterly commit to what he knew would only be accomplished by the shed blood of Jesus. This is what God did for you and for me. The human tragedy of the cross was endured because, because God knew it would become the great triumph of God in, in purchasing the redemption of mankind. At this point, my weeping went to sobbing, and as as I realized that God not only understood everything that I was feeling and thinking, but he knew it on a level I could not even comprehend. And now he wanted to take me to a place of trust where he would transform that dark night into an acceptance of his greater purposes. All that remained was for me to let him. And oh, what a work he has been doing ever since. Praise be to God. So let us look again at Romans 8.28 as we wrap it up. Romans 8.28. So it says, and we know. So how do we know something? We know by becoming familiar with an idea, a fact, and in this case, the truth of God's word. And applying it to our lives so that it becomes something we know from personal experience. We know God's profound truths because they are revealed to us Through the Holy Spirit, and as we obey and walk in faith, his truth becomes something we know that we know. What is it that God wants us to know? Well, first of all, note that it is God, only God, not an evolving, random, random work of the universe, but God himself in his foreknowledge and wisdom that works in all things and for good. But what could possibly be good about the events of that January night? Certainly not that a confused and wayward young man turned on the person who probably loved him as much as anyone could on this earth and took her life in a senseless act of rage. No, the good is something beyond the loss of this special person and beyond the question which apparently still looms in the minds of quite a few. The good for me is, first of all, that God has been able to take my greatest pain and pour into me a vision of his perspective and passion for people. The cross was God's great passion because people are his passion. And if I am to serve him, it is good that I understand in intimate ways the price of living out this passion. It will certainly cost me something, and it may at times cost me for more Than I anticipated. Yet he tells us his grace is sufficient. The good is in the opportunities presented for the gospel to be shared with the hundreds of people at my mother's service and well beyond in all the family, uh, in all the multiple conversations that have been shared by my family and friends. There is also good in acknowledging the sobering reality that our enemy is not simply a man in a little red suit who's running around trying to make our lives miserable. Our enemy is out to utterly destroy us. If this experience has taught me nothing else, it has taught me that we should never underestimate the motives of our enemy. 
God's word warns us that he prowls around like a roaring lion, just looking for someone to devour. As children of God, we have the power of God in us. We have the opportunity to stand between the powers of darkness and the eternal destiny of lost peoples, people. And we must do this fearlessly and empowered by God's Holy Spirit and nothing less. So for whom has this good been wrought? For those who are called, for those who love God and are called. Now, all are called, but not all are will answer with a willingness to embrace God's greater purposes. He is, after all, wanting to give us his greatest gift, himself. But all too often we prefer our happy endings. I am no different from anyone else. I want to pray for things that I believe are good things to pray for, things like healing for sickness, uh, restoration of marriages, uh, the salvation of my friends and family. And these are all good things to pray for. And absolutely, I believe that God wants to answer these prayers. I also believe that God, that there are those times when he wants to give us something far beyond our happy endings. He wants to produce in us his passion for people, all people, the lovely and the unlovely, like Daniel. This story does not end with defeat or tragedy by any means. This last picture I want to share. This was taken. Excuse me. This was taken uh, in uh, May of 2016 um, in southwest Virginia as I stood where my mother's ashes had been scattered on a cold January day. Kathy Vinson was moved by this image, and she graciously provided me with this watercolor rendering. As I stood there that day and raised my arms, I just had a sense of the resurrection of the body. And it was almost as if I could hear God say to me, Oh, Susan, she is not dead. She's more alive than ever. Daniel did not take her life. Her life was given. And she is receiving life in abundance in ways you cannot imagine. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have it entered in the, into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. I share the King James Version, which I love, from 1 Corinthians 2.9, and how my mother did love Jesus. I hope not to be remembered as someone whose life was touched by tragedy, but rather as someone who was willing to allow God to take this tragedy and transform it into a passion for his grander purposes. Whether his passion is for me, to reme- for me to linger in the mission field of the VCU Medical Center or to be sent into the mission field of maybe even the Virginia Department of Corrections or some other mission, maybe into the uttermost parts of the earth, I want my only response to be, here I am, Lord, send me. Let my understanding of his great passion for me fuel a far greater exceeding passion for every soul for whom he died. Thank you for your courage to sit through this. Thank you for listening, for your attention. I hope that you've been encouraged and maybe a little bit challenged this morning. May God bless you.